WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Tia Graham, and you're listening to WDET's new show, connecting you to the news, art, and culture affecting our city and our region. That's right, and Tia, I'm Nick Austin here, and today on the program, the first 3D home in Michigan is being unveiled today in Detroit. Could this be a significant step in creating more affordable housing? We'll learn more from the home's architect, Brian Cook. But first, on the Metro, Wayne State's mobile health unit has been seeing patients on the road in Detroit since 2020. That was in the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic. And since then, the Wayne mobile unit team has partnered with health organizations and community leaders to bring health care to more people in need. A recent partnership with Meridian will allow Wayne State's mobile health unit to send vans out to assist pregnant moms in low-income Detroit neighborhoods. To talk more about the initiative is Philip Levy, and he's the Associate Vice President for Translational Sciences at Wayne State University and the director of the Wayne Mobile Health Unit. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Tia, it's my pleasure to be here. Now, what brought uh, about this recent partnership and the expansion of services for the Mobile Health Unit? We have some issues happening in the community. Yeah, obviously. So maybe to start a little bit with where this began and, and why we're going in this direction. As you mentioned, early in the pandemic, we recognized the need to bring services to folks in the community. We couldn't just sit back and wait for them to show up at hospitals and urgent care centers and what have you. And so we created this mobile outreach program that really took hold. It became a pillar of the state's racial disparities task force. But as we were going through this and testing for COVID and starting to vaccinate, we, we were aware that it was the underlying conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, obesity, high cholesterol, that really led to the adverse outcomes or the problem outcomes we were seeing in brown and black communities. And so we started pushing the edge and saying, let's go into neighborhoods. Let's start measuring blood pressure. Let's start drawing lab tests and figuring out risk. And that's really important because heart disease is the number one cause cause of death uh, in and around Metro Detroit in the country overall, but folks in Detroit are disproportionately impacted by this. Mm. At the same time, there's big problems with birth outcomes and maternal health. And so we started to say, we have a great system to bring care into neighborhoods. Let's push the edge of this and let's start to think about what we can do for women's health issues. And then when we think about women's health issues, especially in the state of Michigan, according to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, between 2015 and 2019, about 63% of the deaths among black pregnant women were preventable deaths. So when we hear those statistics, we think about that. What are some solutions that you all are putting into place with the new mobile unit and the new grant that you all have with Meridian? Yeah, that's great. Uh, And we'll get into that. Before we go, I just want to thank the Centene Foundation and Meridian, and especially their chief medical officer, Kay Judge, who's been a terrific supporter of this initiative. You have to have the payers involved because if we don't think differently about how we deliver and pay for health care, we can't really make substantive change. So what we're really emphasizing is not just on the pregnancy period, but we got to take care of women across the lifespan. You can't be a healthy pregnant woman if you're not a healthy woman necessarily before you become pregnant. We know things like chronic hypertension and diabetes, they dramatically uh, increase the risk of adverse birth outcomes and the risk of death for, for pregnant women. So let's start to think about how we reach out into communities where we know 
there's high risk already, get ahead of the game by starting to measure blood pressure, measure things like hemoglobin A1C, which is an indicator of, of diabetes risk, uh, things like cholesterol. Let's do the things we need to do to make sure every woman can be as healthy as they can be before they get pregnant, while they're pregnant, and afterwards. So when you are in the communities, you're going out, and once again, I saw you out in the community. It was uh, uh, Joy Road in Southfield, for it, right in the heart of that Fitzpatrick uh, uh, neighborhood there, Cody Rouge. And I thought, you know, how are you able to bridge this gap between medical professionals and the, the stigma of working with medical professionals, especially in communities of color? Well, the most important thing is trust, mm -hmm. right? And we started this early in the pandemic, and we saw other mobile vans and other things that were being delivered for place-based services. But as the pandemic started to wind down, we're not out of the woods yet, but as it started to wind down, those resources started to dissipate. We stayed. We've been there since the beginning, and we're always going to be there, and we continue to be there. It's that trust agency that when we went from COVID testing to COVID vaccines, people knew we were going to be the ones bringing vaccines to, to communities. And now that we've been doing this work around high blood pressure, around diabetes, around cholesterol, obesity we're hoping to get into, uh, things like smoking, that the community really believes in us. And most importantly, we've got this incredible network of community-based organizations and partnerships from the faith-based community to others. And as you were talking about, sometimes we just partner with owners of surface parking lots and yeah. say, hey, we want to put healthcare right in the way of people so they trip over it as they're going about their, their lives. And then it's that trust, again, through the lens and through the partnership of the community-based organizations, but also the community knowing that we're there and we're here and we're going to be there in the future. Which is amazing. Once again, uh, uh, what is the Maternal Health Pilot Program altogether? Let's get into that a little bit more and with some of the things that you all plan to do within this program. Yeah. So the Maternal Pilot Program is really intended to take data from a platform that we developed called Phoenix, the Population yeah. Health Outcome and Information Exchange. If you haven't played around with it, anybody, please go to the website. It's publicly available and you'll see an immense amount of information that looks at health risk, health outcomes, and social determinant factors that may be contributing to this. And what we can do is add data in there on maternal outcomes, birth outcomes, and then we get a sense of where the risk is greatest in the communities and we could target directed outreach into those neighborhoods. And again, to do it in partnership with a payer means that when we want to go out and do something, we have the support of a reimbursement structure. So it's great to write grants and it's great to get philanthropy and I've been doing that my entire life. But again, if we don't fundamentally change the way care is delivered so that people can get barrier-free access to services right in their neighborhood, we're not going to change this equation. It's difficult if people have transportation challenges. If they have kids to take care of and they can't take time off to go to a doctor, why should we create uh, you know, obstructions? Why do we live with the obstructions that existed before the pandemic? Let's bulldoze them and change the whole thing. I just think about growing up and having mobile units come to schools when we were younger and, and, and do teeth, you know, dentists, mobile dentistry right. and mobile, the glasses and, and, and some of those things kind of, you know, way, went away. So you all are stepping up and replacing some of those things that we used to see in those communities, in those spaces. Uh, and I think about, we talked a little bit before the show as well, the rural communities. Yeah. And so how are you all integrating yourselves within those communities in, in, in helping them? Yeah. So as part of this, uh, this funding and support, we have dollars that we can put towards staffing and programmatic outreach, and we have many communities beyond Southeast Michigan that we work with. But we're also working directly with the state, and this is a little extension beyond the Meridian Project, uh, to create resources and take state-appropriated dollars in a budget to build up additional mobile units that can all operate off of the same data streams. But effectively, let's think differently about Michigan. We can create something called the Michigan Mobile Health Corps, which we've been working on. 
which is aligning all the mobile units that the state's been supporting so that we take this infrastructure and resource that came up through the pandemic and we make it enduring. And we take the lessons we learned from the pandemic, which were you couldn't go to your doctor to get your blood, pre- uh, excuse me, to get your uh, COVID test or your COVID vaccination. And you couldn't even go there to get some of your prescriptions refilled. We created this infrastructure in the community and work with the community to say there's a different way. Now let's keep pushing it forward. Let's not retract. Let's let's push forward. And, you know, you talked to just a little bit about working with the state or working at the state level to try to get some legislation changes. So I try to get some some movement going. So that way you all the work that you're doing right now isn't going to be just the little work that you're doing. You want to expand it, like you said. So what are some of the things and some of the things you're talking to uh, the state about in order to help expand the work that you are doing with the mobile unit? So foremost, uh, uh, Senator Santana, Representative Tate have been amazing partners, as has Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist and and the governor herself. And I think they're all willing to say we can lead the nation from Michigan. We've, we've done this for many years in different areas. And you can lead the nation by thinking differently and applying innovation in real time. It's not just enough to talk about things. You have to actually go about changing them. And so what we're having these conversations is saying, can Michigan do something different? Can Michigan work with a collective vision to say, not how do we improve the health of just that one patient that that one doctor saw, but how do we change outcomes at a population level? How do we, we reduce maternal mortality, improve uh, you know, uh, birth outcomes, at the same time driving improvements in cardiovascular outcomes and reducing risk from substance use disorders and keep extending how far we can go with this because we really have created an incredibly unique resource and I speak all over the country on this and every time I talk, people are just amazed at what we've been able to accomplish here. I mean, you've been doing it for four years now and the growth that you all have seen in the four years has been absolutely amazing. The expanded services you've been able to offer just based on word of mouth, community uh, uh, leaderships and, and partnerships and, and trust, like you said, within within uh, the system. So Philip Levy is the Associate Vice President for Translational Sciences at Wayne State University and the Director of the Wayne Mobile Health Unit. I want to say thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. We will see you soon. I can't wait. Thank you, Tia. You're welcome. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. Who says doctors can't make house calls anymore, right? Let's bring health to you in a van. The Motor City would figure out a way to put it in the van. I love that, Tia. That's wonderful. Coming up, we'll talk about the first 3D printed home in the state, which will be unveiled later today in Detroit. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. Welcome back to the Metro right here on 1019 WDET, connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, art and culture affecting the city and our region. We were just talking about mobile health units, room, room, getting around. But now you're talking about, you know, you're putting stuff together almost like Lego style. Mm, I used to love Legos. I I can tell. I can tell you were a Lego guy. You're probably still a Lego guy. You can do adult Legos. You're exposing too much to the radio world, Tia. (laughs) 
But what we want to expose you to is stories, speaking of Legos, so appropriate, Tia. The idea of putting together homes. How can we do it now? A lot has changed with technology in the 21st century. Maybe we can use technology as a way to build homes for folks. And one of the things that we're looking at is a, a different process that someone's using. The Citizen Robotics and Develop Architecture has com- officially completed Michigan's first 3D printed home. That's right. Located at 144 Sheridan in Detroit, the home will be displayed at a ribbon cutting event today at 4.30 p.m. To understand how this home was constructed and how 3D printing works, producer Sam Corey spoke with Brian Lee Cook. He is the CEO, founder, and architect develop, uh, architect of Develop Architecture and the president of Detroit's chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects. They began by discussing how the 3D home came to be in Detroit. It came about because of a, a kind of mutual connection and then a mutual kind of aligning of vision. One of my fellow members of NOMA, National Organization of Minority Architects, she runs and owns Space Lab. And that is a co-working space focused on architecture, engineering, construction. And I'm a member of that. And Tom and Citizen Robotics, before we started working, and did a few presentations about 3D printing and on the construction level. And I was like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. And then they were looking for somebody to work with, be the architect, to help move their project forward. So I was like, okay. I mean, this sounds super interesting. And then I met with uh, Tom and his team at Citizen Robotics. And and a lot of things just aligned. At the end of the day, I, I definitely wanted to do something really cool as the first 3D printed structure in the state, but also their ideals. We align there, like helping the youth get engaged in construction in a totally different way, bringing about some change in the, in the construction industry, and then being more people focused on, you know, looking toward the future of work and trying to be more inclusive. There literally isn't enough minority architects, but specifically black architects. So um, there's over 125,000 licensed architects in the entire country. There are only 2,500 or so black architects in the entire country. 543 from the last time I looked are black women in the entire country. So when, you know, doing this, It's cool for me, just period. But one of the things, you know, I want to make sure we're doing is that I can be on the forefront of this rather than, you know, minorities being on the end of technology. So a lot of the vision that they had aligned with a lot of things that I see or want to see. So tell me very basically, how does 3D (laughs) printing work? You know, what should I be imagining? The one we used for this project is actually an old automotive factory arm. So when you see uh, like commercials or when you see the factory, you know, the cars going through the factory and those mm-hmm. arms are like moving kind of crazy and they, and they get in for this little specific weld and then they go back and they do it again. It was one of those arms mm-hmm. um, because it spends years doing one motion, right? So all that motion, all that uh, infrastructure of that robot is doing one thing for years on end. Well, at some point that that movement breaks down, but the robot itself has plenty of other fluid motion it can still do. So repurpose that into a 3D printer by putting a concrete pump on the end of it. So that is the printer um, we use, but it's the principle is the same for either type of printer, right? You'll you'll find different types of printer, but they're all essentially doing the same thing. They're, they're going along a path and uh, squeezing out a small amount of concrete or mortar 
or earth. So it squeezes it out, lays it out in the path that you're designing, and then it slowly stacks it. We have a housing shortage of ready-to-move-in homes in Detroit. Um, This is starting to become a problem here. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how much 3D-printed homes can assist in alleviating this problem. The way we solve this problem is from the the policy end at the end of the day. This is a tool in the toolbox that is being developed that can help do things more efficiently and potentially faster. But all of the things to get to the point where you're actually able to send a printer out to the site and print or printing pieces that can actually be delivered to a site that's ready, all that stuff is the same. You got to purchase the land. You got to coordinate the land. You got to prep the land. You got to coordinate with different trades, coordinate with the municipalities. Like these are these are things that still happen regardless of what type of construction it is. You just completed this this 3D printed home in Detroit, the first one in Michigan. What is going to happen to it? And should I expect to see more 3D printed homes that that you're working on? Brian, what what does this look like? Well, the plan right now is that it it's currently for sale. So it is MISHTA funded and they're looking to sell. And it's income restricted because of the funds that was used to help build the house, um, like innovative fund MISHTA had. So, I mean, it's not going anywhere. Uh, hopefully somebody's enjoying the house uh, relatively soon. Definitely plan to see more. I did a, a preliminary kind of design for a fourplex for a client um, in talks with another client about doing a house. So, you know, it's not, I got 18 projects, right? 3D mm-hmm. printer ready to go. But I think once even more gets out about the house, people are going to continue to be interested and want to know more just like yourself and really want to do something different for themselves or because it's a different type of product. Brian Lee Cook, CEO, founder, and architect of Develop Architecture. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Glad to be here. That was Brian Cook, architect of Michigan's first 3D printed home in Detroit, speaking with producer Sam Corey. Brian says the Detroit chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects hosts an architecture camp for high schoolers annually in July. You can find out more information about that at nomadetroit.org. It is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin with Tia Graham. And Tia, if you're having trouble using your cell phone this morning... I told you I was. You did tell I me did. you were. And I didn't believe you. I, I told everyone. And and you were right. Ah. You're not the only one. You listening, you're not the only one either. Cellular service customers across Metro Detroit and beyond are grappling with major outages affecting cities across the United States. In fact, outages peaked this morning, 8.20 a.m. at 73,000. And again, nationwide from Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, uh, all over the place. So they're working on that problem. Know that you're not alone. And hopefully we can get some cell phone service back quickly. What are we with? Without our cell phones, do you? Honestly, right now I'm a chicken without my head. All if right. I don't have it, it's just like. <laughs> yep, I don't even know life. It's without probably it. what the phone call sounds like without accurate cellular service. Yeah, Jack said it sounds okay. like you're calling the fax machine. All right, well that's all right. <laughs> a quick update on the weather, by the way. Today, expected scattered showers before 1 p.m. It's going to be a high near 50 degrees. Friday is going to be partly sunny with a high near 40 degrees. It's going to be windy as well with gusts 
gusts reaching up to 18 miles per hour. This is the Metro. Our country is still struggling to tame drug overdoses. One out of two American adults know someone who have died of an overdose, according to Rand Corporation study. Michelle Martin spoke with reporter, reporter Martha B. Binger about the study. Researchers surveyed more than 2,000 adults, and they used the results of that survey to estimate what's happening across the country. It shows that 125 million adults know someone in many cases, they know more than one person who's died after an overdose. Now, you might imagine some of those connections are pretty casual, like the friend of a cousin or a high school buddy you didn't stay in touch with. But an estimated 40 million Americans had enough of a relationship to say that the death had an impact on them. And the study says about 12 million people continue to grieve what's described as a devastating loss. Hmm. So it's a, a survey, it's based on the modeling, but just even based on the modeling, those are just pretty devastating figures. Yes. So is this true across the board or does it vary state by state? It does vary, yes. So in states where there are more overdose deaths, like Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Tennessee, and also all of New England where I live, there are more people with a direct connection because there are more deaths, Right. So in these areas, researchers worry that the impact of all this collective trauma might be leading to even more suffering. This is Allison Athey, the lead author on the RAND study. This type of bereavement is creating vicious circles within communities where there's a death that spurs suffering, that spurs more deaths, that spurs more suffering, and there's an exponential increase. So Athey says these communities may need some individual strategies to stop that spiral of grief and despair that she's just described that might lead to more deaths. And these strategies might be along the lines of what's often offered to families who lose someone to suicide. So we might sort of have a model to use. And so what might these strategies look like? The researchers are very concerned about the families left behind after a death. They're concerned that they're being left behind in other ways because there's very little public attention or support to help them with their trauma. So they want more support, and the study authors say we also have to stop shaming and blaming people who are addicted to opioids, because that extends then to the friends and family members who survive these deaths. Here's an example of that. This is Leslie Gomes Preston. She heard some very ugly comments about her daughter after she died in 2016. Some people, you hear drugs and they think, well, uh, she must have been a bad person. I've had people say that it's my fault. Some people are just cruel. So these kinds of messages compound grief. They make people want to clam up or isolate instead of heal. And Martha, before we let you go, are researchers concerned about any specific groups of survivors? Children. Children, Michelle. A lot of people who die leave children behind. They're living with grandparents or in foster homes. They weren't part of this research, which only sampled adults. But other research has shown that rates of childhood suicide are even higher in communities where there are lots of overdose deaths. So we know there are more ripple effects beyond what's in the study we've just been talking about. That was NPR's Michelle Martin speaking with reporter Martha Biebinger about why overdoses are still a major problem in America. If you or someone you know is considering hurting themselves, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. 
You're listening to your daily source for the news, arts, and culture driving Metro Detroit forward on 1019 WDET. Coming up, we'll talk about the problem of scrapyards in Detroit. But first, the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Council is having three public hearings today at the Second Ebenezer Church. Commissioners will be meeting with the community and people will be able to give comments on the maps drawn by the commission. The public meetings are taking place from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., from 2 to 5 p.m., and from 6 to 8 p.m. The finalized district maps must be submitted by March 1st. Now, Nick, we're talking about scrapyards. All right, let's go. Were you Fred Sanford? Where's Lamont? I almost just laughed out loud. You're allowed to do that. Okay. Scrapyards have become a big problem in Detroit, and that's because nearly 70% of 1,400 scrapyards and auto repair lots in the city don't comply with Detroit's city codes and regulations. Residents are now saying the officials need to do more to regulate these lots. Earlier this week, Stephen Henderson sat down with the Detroit News' Sarah Rahal about the issue. Here is Rahal speaking with Stephen on WDET's Created Equal about the compliance issues scrapyards are running into. I think that part of the uh, environmental issues that raise the amount of concern that rose to this level of doing this article was basically, you know, how are they complying? We, you know, Duggan, the mayor, Mike Duggan, put in a moratorium back in 2020 that we put a halt to new applications. There was just too many. At the time, the, the city's law department said that the businesses were multiplying like rabbits and popping up with no licensure permits and Really, realistically, the city did not regulate it before the moratorium. Mm-hmm. It was residents who raised the concern to the mayor and showed them this is becoming a problem in our neighborhood. We're seeing shops go and auto businesses come, and this is not what we want. And it got to the point where one resident I talked to said, one day I woke up and there was a business that had expanded into a vacant lot behind their just lot. took the lot. Just and, took the lot and started using started it. stacking up cars. Yeah. And one day, she said that he had the audacity to bring in a car crusher right into the middle of their neighborhood and crushing cars. Yeah. And that became way more than just a noise concern. Um, they they found that a lot of these businesses leave behind a really bad uh, environmental hazard when they do abandon these lots. Um, it's a lot of fuel, gas, oil, it's stuff that steeps into the ground and we have to take care of it as residents to rehab it, to make it viable for something else when they do leave. Um, So the city did crack down on it, halted applications for five years, Mm -hmm. extended the moratorium five times, um, and started a process where they began creating ordinances that would enforce regulations to new businesses that were opening. This did not apply necessarily to all the businesses that already existed, but they did start putting them on the map and keeping track of them and issuing fines, which were uh, a big deal because mm-hmm. these businesses operated as they wanted before that. Right. So uh, a lot of the fines were for businesses who had parked outside of their lots, kept cars on the main roads and blocked entryways, and uh, they issued more than a million in fines in the past few years. Um, a third of those fines have been paid. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a common problem in the city is that even when uh, city government decides to, to try to regulate something or crack down on something, the compliance with the crackdown is uh, is spotty, right? Right. Um, people don't don't do it. Uh, let, let's talk about the um, the things that that uh, that environmental concerns 
that that these raise the things that 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 go on on these lots that that uh, the city and certainly the state through uh, uh, the environmental uh, protection mm-hmm. arm of the state are concerned with what what are the things that they're doing i mean it's traffic it's noise it's crime it's blight it's, um, it's a lot of things. it's a lot of things i mean it's there's so much frequent neighborhood complaints on just the aesthetic mm-hmm. of the neighborhood. Yeah, um, I mean, if you go up and down Livernoy, for instance, which is uh, one of the main streets near where I was born here in Detroit, Livernoy and Grand yeah. River, uh, these shops are everywhere. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's replaced all of the other commerce mm-hmm. that we used to have in neighborhoods like that. And look, they're businesses, right? They are employing people, mm-hmm. uh, presumably they're paying taxes and things like that. That's great. But uh, it, it absolutely ruins the the residential feel mm-hmm. that you would have in these neighborhoods. And I feel like in Detroit, where we have so many of these very wide boulevards uh, that, that can sustain businesses like this, we just are dealing with more of it than other people are. For sure. I mean, the, the part of my reporting, which was concentrated in the um, – Midwest Tireman area. That was the most dense area mm-hmm. that I found, mm-hmm. uh, which had the most amount of residents that were pissed off about <laughs> about <laughs> this. Um, walking just from the Joe Lewis trailhead, the $6 million yeah. uh, beautiful greenway that we are building, um, if you just walk two feet from that, you will see a block on West Warren that is just filled with different collision shops. And I'm talking more than a dozen. And one even couple blocks down has a now open sign. They opened last week. Wow. Um, and so it was just very uh, telling to see with your eyes. And then once you go into these smaller corridors, like take Central, left to Tireman, and in between you will find five different junkyards mm-hmm. and scrapyards that are kind of fenced off with these humongous like metal bars. And then you see buses and different like tire stacks and it's almost like how do you even retrieve one mm-hmm. of these vehicles from the tight space that you collapse them all in? Um, and there's plenty of a community that is curated around this type of business. When I went from shop to top, shop to shop, asking people, why did you open this business? How are you doing? How is there so much competition right. for this amount of business? Uh, the owner either wasn't there, they thought I was the city and immediately said to call the owner, or they felt that um, I didn't know what I was talking about and <laughs> that there is, you know, this is the Motor City and there's plenty of competition to go around. Right. Um, it, it really was telling to walk through a corridor and not see a gas station or anything else but this type of business. That was reporter Sarah Rahal speaking with Stephen Henderson on Created Equal. The show runs from 9 to 10 a.m. each day and can be streamed at WDET.org. This is the Metro, helping you discover Detroit beyond the headlines, one story at a time on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin with Tia Graham, and coming up, we'll talk about how one clerk in Canton has been dealing with early in-person voting. Right here on 1019 WDET, I am Tia Graham with Nick Austin. Thanks for joining us with the new show connecting you to news, culture, and arts that's moving Metro Detroit. A quick weather forecast. 
today. Expect scattered showers before 1 p.m. Then it's going to be a high near 50 degrees. Uh, tomorrow, Friday, is going to be partly sunny with a high around 42. It's going to be windy as well. Gusts can reach up to 18 miles per hour, so wear that windbreaker. Yeah, and next Tuesday, hopefully it'll be a little bit warmer, but it is primary day and next Tuesday. And this is uh, election officials' first experience with early in-person voting. The process started last Saturday under a new state law that allows at least nine days of early voting. Canton Township Clerk Michael Segris spoke with WDET's Pat Batchelor about how it's going. Voters who, um, who show up are very vocal about enjoying the process and the folks who work the the poll workers who work on uh, uh, who work on early voting they're enjoying the process much better than election day it's less stressful you know it's more convenient for for voters and the administration is um, is less anxiety inducing what problems have they reported if any most of the problems are because uh, a lot of the technology is in like a beta phase, if that if that makes sense. Uh, we will see the tools develop over this over the year. So by November, uh, everything should be set. Uh, some of the procedure right now is also written in pencil. So we're learning as we go. When I spoke with uh, Macomb County Clerk Anthony Forlini recently, he told me he was concerned that people who work at the early voting places could be there you know, all day and no one shows up to vote. Uh, he questioned whether that would be a good use of time and taxpayer resources. Uh, do you share that concern? Has it been a problem so far? We frequently run elections where turnout is very low mm-hmm. um, in Michigan. You can put an election on the May ballot, which typically has very low turnout. Right. So um, the challenge um, I would put to anybody, including uh, the county clerk, um, is that the challenge is on election administrators to make sure we're administering early voting in an in an accessible manner for the voter, but in an efficient manner as well. So there are a number of counties like Oakland County that chose to use a county run model Mm -hmm. and they use the sites to maximize the bang for the buck. They are using their dollars wisely. And then there are um, other other counties where uh, local jurisdictions have chosen to go it on their own. Many of them should not have done it. They did not have enough voters to justify doing an early voting site by themselves. So there are opportunities for, let's say, uh, the city of Plymouth and Plymouth Township to maybe join together and do uh, do it together, which would um, not be a, a huge inconvenience to voters because they're still in the same area. They're not traveling further to vote. But you've got more voters assigned to uh, a site. And I think those questions may be academic right now. They will probably be satisfied by November when more people show up to vote. When when voter turnout jumps in some communities up to the high 70 percent, and if you get 20 percent of folks voting early, we're going to wish we were uh, having these slow days that we're currently having. So that not right now, I'm viewing it as an opportunity to practice for November. Of course, absentee voting began uh, before early in-person voting. Uh, AV votes uh, this year will be tabulated before Election Day, as I understand. Uh, what does that mean? In Canton Township, we are going to start that process. Uh, we will start coming up this Saturday, and um, we will also be doing it the Monday before election. Uh, so all of the, so Canton Township, we've mailed out 
At this point, roughly 14,000 absentee ballots. We've received about 9,000 of them back. So starting Saturday, uh, we will call our uh, absent voter counting board, which are our inspectors, just like in a precinct, bipartisan groups of folks. We're going to grab those 9,000 ballots that we've verified their signature and we've received them into the system. We're going to open up those ballots. We're going to remove them from their secrecy sleeves. Uh, We're going to tabulate them into the machines, which will begin the um, accumulation of the results, which will not be made public until eight o'clock on election night. Yeah, that seems a little fraught. I mean, how do you keep the results of those uh, tabulated votes from being released uh, before the polls close on uh, the 27th? So it's 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 similar to the same method you would use for early voting. Uh, every single day right now, the same tabulator is, is shut off and turned on. Um, they are just programmed that you that they do not show the results without entering in a separate password and that password is not given to the folks operating the machines. Now, do you use paid staff mostly or volunteers to work at polls uh, or a combination? We use a combination of both, and it's different on the role they're playing. There are there are individuals who've worked for Canton Township who have uh, additional training. We bring them in for troubleshooting, uh, if equipment has issues on election day or in the early or in the early voting period or uh, in the absent voter counting board, so we 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 tend to have staff in supervisory roles and in troubleshooting roles, but the um, handling of ballots and the um, and the assistance of voters on election day and early that is done by the community. We have over three hundred uh, poll workers in Canton Township who 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 run the election. Reason I ask is because I want to know if you've had any trouble recruiting uh, poll workers because it could be dangerous with the threats and intimidation that many have faced uh, in 2020 and even since then. Yeah, that's a concern some individuals express. What's great to see, there's been a cooling off period. I think as there have have been consequences for folks from the 2020 election, people who went off the deep end, maybe uh, lost control of their their emotions and their ability to kind of discern the true from the false, and they became aggressive. Um, There's been some consequences for that behavior, and there's been a level setting, and it feels like as a society, uh, people have kind of come back together in some semblance of sanity. And so that has become less of a concern this year. It was a concern in 2022 because that was the first election after 2020 when I think we collectively lost our mind as a country. Um, By 2024 right now, um, I haven't heard a lot of concerns over safety or security. Um, The hardest part about recruiting right now is because we moved the primary up a month is a lot of my poll workers are in Florida and they just can't work. So we we are working hard to recruit um, and, and we're getting there. That was WDET's Pat Batchelor speaking with Clerk Michael Segrist about early in person voting in Canton. This is the Metro. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. Coming up, we'll hear about Joe Biden and his waning support. But first, how did state lottery come to be in Michigan? Well, that's a good question, Tia. And I can tell you that it was on this day in 1973 that Taylor resident Hermes Millsaps became the first winner of Michigan's $1 million lottery drawing. The year before, Michigan and six other states started government-run lotteries. But before states ran their own lotteries, these games were run by smaller illegal operations. 
Bridget Davis's mom ran one of those operations. In 2019, the Detroiters spoke with NPR's Scott Simon about her autobiography, The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. In the interview, Davis spoke about how the illegal lottery business set the stage for state-run lottery programs. As you, as you grew up, how did you handle your love and pride for your mother? With the need for secrecy. Not like you could say, boy, you ought to see my mom do this. You have really captured the heart of my dilemma my entire life. Imagine being that proud of your mom and not being able to brag about her. But it was a legitimate business that just happened to be illegal. <laughs> well, and and so widely accepted. I mean, it, it if I might put it this way, inspired many states, including the state of Michigan, to begin their own lottery. Oh, that's a nice word, inspired. (laughs) I would say they usurped it. And how did it affect your mother's business? Well, it was uh, sort of affected in stages. What a lot of people don't know is that originally when the lottery was made legal in states like Michigan, it was a weekly drawing. Once a week, you could have a chance to win. You didn't get to pick your numbers. And that was not direct competition with the numbers, which was a daily operation in which people were betting on these three digits that they got to choose. Yeah, so they could do birthdays. They could do lucky numbers. Oh, there are so many numbers in the world that you can bet on. (laughs) 313. Exactly, 313, Detroit's area code. My favorite, because 313 in the Three Wise Men Dream Book, plays for the word joy. Mm. So the state of Michigan did not immediately run your mother out of business, did they? No. It took five years before the State Lottery Commission finally got around to its real point, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which was to be direct competition with the underground numbers operation. And so that is when they introduced the daily so that gave immediate rewards and... Yeah, immediate payoffs, 500 to 1 payout. Um, people got to choose their numbers. They adopted slogans in their ads that came right out of the black community. <laughs> it was pretty whole cloth, sort of a, a grab of the system that was already in place. That was NPR's Scott Simon speaking with the author and filmmaker Bridget Davis on the numbers game her mother ran from their Detroit family home. We'd also like to note that if you have a gambling problem, you can call the Michigan Problem Gambling Helpline at 1-800-270-7117. This is the Metro on 1019 WDET. And coming up, we'll talk about polling that suggests President Biden is unpopular among young voters. Welcome back to the Metro right here on 1019 WDETFM, our newish show connecting you to arts, news, and culture that's moving Metro Detroit. Nick Austin is right here with me. That is true. I am right here. You can tell by my voice. (laughs) 
Thank you, Tia. And Tuesday is the official date of Michigan's presidential primary. But while many thought the earlier date for Michigan would increase the significance of the primary, this hasn't been the case. Both Donald Trump and President Biden remain the presumptive nominees for the Republican and Democratic parties, respectively. Notwithstanding these presumptions, though, in recent Michigan poll, President Biden trails Donald Trump by four points. Now, it's hard to know if these polls hold up so early, but it still begs the question. What is behind a result like this, and what does it mean for voters statewide? To learn more, we have Jonathan Osting with us. He is a deputy editor and politics reporter for Bridge Michigan. Jonathan, welcome to the Metro. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. By the way, congratulations on the new position as deputy editor. I saw that and cheered a little bit, so I just wanted to give you some love. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Congratulations for launching the new show. Too. Hey, thank you so much for that. But let's get into politics. This is what everybody came here for. And we are so far out from this election. I know we've got the primary coming up, so people care about it in Michigan. But to me, it would seem to not even most people are really paying that much attention to the election right now. I still see these flurries of reports. So what does something, a poll telling us Donald Trump is up by four points, really tell us right now uh, in Michigan? Well, it's certainly debatable. I mean, uh, obviously, polls are just a snapshot in time. And if a lot of folks aren't engaged in the uh, electoral process right now, it might not be all that telling. That said, I think most voters in the state pretty much know who Donald Trump and Joe Biden are at this point and have, you know, fairly firm views. So, uh, you know, a lot could change before November. But, um, you know, what I wrote about is, uh, you know, some of the nuances that you could see in those numbers, specifically uh, some troubling points for Biden beyond just that top line takeaway that there are certain segments of the population he's not doing particularly well with that he did four years ago. Well, let's break down that a little bit. I know that in looking at your article, one of the areas with young people, can you tell us what you learned in your reporting? Yeah, so um, a separate poll from the one that you uh, referenced, but a poll from early January uh, really spelled trouble for Joe Biden with young voters. So, I mean, young voters traditionally are a pretty safe bet for Democrats. And in particular, like turnout among young voters can be really important to them for winning elections. And Biden did very well with the 18 to 29 year old demographic in 2020. He won uh, that demographic with over 60, it was 61 percent of the vote, I think, according to exit polls. And, uh, you know, he won the state by 51 percent. So he really outperformed with young folks. Well, um, this this recent polling from from January, from last month now, um, showed he was trailing Trump actually by 12 points among those young voters. And, you know, more perhaps, um, you know, troubling for his campaign is that uh, only 15 or less than 16 percent of uh, those young voters had a favorable opinion of Joe Biden. Um, And the most common reason was that simply he's too old. Yeah, and this is something that's been coming up a lot, Jonathan. But if we're referring to the same poll, and we might not, from what I saw, that was a survey of 600 people, and it looked like they were looking through the crosstabs to get those young folks and talk about that separation. That would be a tiny sampling this early for a population that, again, historically 50% turnout maybe for that age range as opposed to older ages. So I, I push a little bit on on this polling. I mean, can we really extract that much there? Is this just an expression of dissatisfaction? What do you take away from that? 
I mean, you're right that it's definitely a small sample, so we're going to have to see how those numbers pan out, if there's more extensive polling moving forward. Um, You know, I went to college campuses, though, over the last two weeks, and while, again, you know, I talked to a very small sample of young voters in Michigan, uh, I did sense a lot of dissatisfaction uh, this far out. Uh, You know, again, maybe folks are not super checked in right now. I mean, what the Biden campaign is already trying to work on is just to say, hey, regardless of how you feel about the economy or the war between Israel and Hamas, I mean, what it really comes down to is, do you like Donald Trump any better? Mm. So they're going to try and, you know, really focus, uh, you know, the the issue on on Trump and hone in on that, uh, you know, pointing out what they say is a very stark choice. Um, And, you know, the closer we get to November, I suspect a lot of voters will take that choice a little more seriously. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And we're going to have to keep checking in with you, Jonathan Osting, to learn more several other uh, areas, learn more about the issues young people are having with Biden. Uh, Thank you, Deputy Editor and Politics Reporter for Bridge Michigan, Jonathan Osting, for joining us on the Metro. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, hearing about that and excuse me, hearing about young people, I thought about the young person who's coming on next. That's right. To talk about In the Groove. I see big things from this young man, this Ryan young Patrick man. Hooper. This young man. I'm too old to say I'm mature for my age or that there's better things ahead for me. But at this sweet spot, I love music. and I love playing it for you. I've got a lot of great stuff ahead on the show. Something fresh from Nora Jones, who continues to impress me. As she gets older, she gets a little more experimental, a little looser with her tracks. I think it's some of the best music that she is making right now. Plus... The final chance to win Vampire Weekend tickets on this show, In the Groove, coming up here at noon on WDET. Thanks, Nick and Tia. You're welcome. Looking forward to hearing Nora Jones' new music. Thank you, Ryan. But that's the Metro for February 22nd. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The show is produced by Sam Corey, David Lines, and Jack Philbrandt. Our technical director is Nate Bender. Music by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn. And our program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and want to support The Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. You're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tia, as Sanford and son might say, Fred G. Sanford, uh, Elizabeth, coming to join you. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.